You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns, right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. And hi, everybody. We are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. That's me. Burns, and we're the co-hosts of Future Theater Live, broadcasting from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Sulbury Village, Pennsylvania, on PSN Radio and the Dark Matter Digital Network. And tonight, again... You haven't said what day it is of the year. Oh, I'm sorry. It is June 20th. 2016, the summer solstice is here. Congratulations. Happy summer, everybody. Our producer is the jackal, Angel yeah, Espino. Say hello, Angel. Hello, Angel. And Angel, I. Angel, we don't have Chris on yet. Where's Chris? Chris yeah, is not here. Yeah, he was standing by. Last we were time. all so deep in conversation, we forgot to get Chris on. Yeah, we forgot okay, to we'll get, get Chris, Chris on. Well, Chris, Chris is going to join us. Chris is very busy. He's moving tomorrow, so he's going to be a busy boy. And probably haven't he, he hasn't even missed us, but... We we were deep in conversation just talking about what a great guest we've got tonight and how, from the looks of it, we're going to have to have him on every single week, week after week, until we can get all the information out of him that he knows so much He might stuff. be like like a year-round guest, Nancy. Like yeah, you should just I have him on so. every show, like yeah. ever. I've been wanting to have him on Skywatchers for a while now. I just haven't been able to contact him properly and get it yeah. done. Yeah. I'm well, excited Mike, to have him on. Mike Schratt, who's our guest, is an aviation historian, a military aviation historian. He's done some really incredible, great research work into black budgets, yeah. black aircraft, yeah. the secret space mm-hmm. program. Yep. So yep. this is this is really great stuff. And Exciting. so he's going to yep. talk tonight. Yeah, he's going to talk tonight about the secret space program, the uh, Star Wars Initiative, the STI, uh, the SDI anti missile defenses. Uh, he's going to talk about the Aurora space plane. And 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 uh, we're going to try to engage on things like the Cash Landrum case, mm-hmm. um, the Phoenix Lights. Well, as a special, special, special treat, if you go to futuretheater.com, you will see a a graphic the 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 how I'm illustrating tonight's show. You can print that out, folks. Um, it, it it it's I think full size right as it is even on the way you know if if you double click it and print it out and then you'll see as you look further down the page you can put it together your own little stealth plane it's a little it's a little paper plane that's right it's so cute I mean Mike has done incredible work so cute um, and and also on Mike's if you look at his photo he's put it together with scotch tape okay you could clearly see the scotch tape and he didn't like touch over it with some paint or something. I'm just pointing this out. In addition to being our guest on UFO Hunters on multiple occasions, uh, Mike was also, uh, I don't know if the show is still on, he was the host of the um, Open Minds Forum television show uh, back in, back a few years ago. And I don't know if that show is still running, but I know that well, you know, I think, internet show. I it's think not so. running, actually. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Are you all set to move? And he appears. Tomorrow is tomorrow is the day. Yes, tomorrow's D Day. Are you all packed up? Yep, all packed up. Just ready to. They're coming over here, dropping off the keys tonight, and then picking up our stuff and putting it in the truck and ready to go. There you go. 
Wow. Mm, and and, and your wife is letting you sit down for a couple of hours, There right? you go. And talk yes. to Mike Shrat. That's exactly it. And I'm looking forward to the show, by the way. He's somebody I've always wanted to uh, to hear. And, and um, But, no, it's going to be a big day tomorrow. So I'm doing this. I just got time to, to do the show. And everything's well, just basically all packed. And tomorrow's the big move. What's the temperature like in your neck of the woods? Uh, it's been not real hot. I would say 82, 83. Do you now. know that it was 125 degrees today in Palm Springs, California? My goodness. Global yeah, warming? My Anybody? uncle's in, uh, it's, it's just right outside of uh, Yuma. And, and he called my mom yesterday, and they're going to be coming up because it's so hot for the summer. So. That's right. In Phoenix, it was a, it's over 120 degrees. And I've, I've been in Phoenix. We filmed in Phoenix when it was 100 degrees. I can't imagine what 120 degrees is, you know, is like in Phoenix. Ugh, that's I lived all- in, in 94. I went down to go see my Uncle Fred in uh, 128 degree temperature. Mm. And it was uh, it was record breaking at that point in time. It had, was seven degrees off of the the record, which was like 136, I guess, at that point in time. Well, I wonder how mu- how hot it have does it have to be to start cooking you as cooking your internal organs, basically. Uh, it felt over like it was two hundred and twelve over two hundred and twelve degrees. Okay, we we're cool. We're cool. Global warming can take its time. We're cool. Two hundred and twelve. We've got a hundred degrees it's to the go. Boiling point. I'm joking. We've got yeah. It's sad. We have had the, the hottest May in the history of recorded May. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have. It's true. You know uh, where it was really hot last night? Where? where is that? Oakland, California. Oh, yeah. How come? Oh, yes. Cleveland Cavaliers went in there and they burned the place up. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Did they play? Uh, was the other team from Oakland? Yeah, nope. the uh, Golden, Golden State Warriors. Are yeah, the gold, yeah, the Golden State. Yeah. Right. Well, everybody yeah. knew. Everybody knew it was going to happen. And because there's just a feeling that um, when, when the uh, Republican Party booked that same stadium, everybody knew that, that that would give them the shot in the arm to kind of, I don't know, get in there and mix things up. Make it harder to set up the greatest extravaganza. When does the Republican National Convention start? I'm talking about basketball. Yeah. It's two weeks. In two weeks, it's yeah. Mm-hmm. I know, I know. And it was probably fabulous. And it was a sport, it was a sporting event, correct? It was. Well, it was. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, here's the thing. <laughs> oh, that's the second funniest thing I've heard don't, all day. Don't, 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 don't. If, I don't want to go into it on the air, but but I have a, I do have a joke that reminds me. I'm oh, Nancy, oh, 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 just a joke. Every that's your that's Pay attention. Rooms. Actually, I it, it's a really good one. Um, and I have to. Okay. Um, better be fascinating. Better be good. No, 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 no. Keep going. I'm. Uh, I have more than one, so I have to. I have to say it just right. Oh, this is it. Why do scuba divers always fall backwards out of boats? <laughs> I love it. Why? Mm-hmm. Because if they fell forwards, they'd still be in the boat. <laughs> uh-huh, very true. Uh, I love it. Oh God! Oh, I love it. It's a good one. We, good you one. know, we need we need Robert Morningstar because he has the crickets in the background right now. And- yeah, we can we can do the crickets. Okay, well, so I, know- I, I particularly <laughs> grabbed that one and cut and pasted that one and prepared myself. <laughs> that, that that's bad. me. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay, so yeah, it wasn't that bad, Angie. It wasn't that bad. Not that bad. So how so how's it going? How's it going, Angel, with your Trumpness at this point in time? Hey, I got Trump news, by the way, about watching on Trump and Charlie Sheen of Trump giving Charlie Sheen fake cufflings. Oh, I read that. that. Yep, and Charlie's doing the report right now. We talk or do the interview right now. He uh, he got fake cufflings from Donald, who met him and said, "Oh, well, geez, okay. I'm sorry." Well, to make it through. Yeah, but Charlie Sheen is not exactly the most credible person in the no, world. No, no, no. But, he, but, but here's the funny thing: if you guys, he's not watch, exactly winning anymore. If you guys watch the movie, uh, the new LBJ movie called All the All Way, in. All the Way. All, All the way, way with LBJ. That All the way. Happen. There is that Something exact like that. scene in which LBJ says to a guy, he gets right up in his face and says stuff you know, like, "Vote for my stuff." And then, the, and then he says, "You like these cufflinks here? They're the only ones, and now you've got them." And then he, when he leaves the elevator with the guy, he says to his staff, "Okay, get me another pair of cufflinks of the millions I've got." And that mm-hmm. is the same exact story, basically, because because uh, Donald Trump like took them off and gave them to him and said they're platinum, gold, no diamonds in 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 white. White platinum, I think it was. The and it had its initials on them, I yeah, guess. Yeah, they were like the cheapest of the cheap. Mm-hmm. Really cheap. Yeah. Cubic zirconia. <laughs> and that's the problem with Trump. Um, he's just this kind of ersatz person. Ersatz person. The person who got the cufflinks from LBJ, by the way, was Mike Mansfield. He was a senator. Yeah. Okay. Just... Oh, listen, two really good TV things we have to talk about. Number one, Uh you, Angel, have to go uh, looking for this thing called Wayward Pines. Got to see this. Oh, I love the premise. Wayward Pines. It's uh, already had one season. I believe it's in. It's in. It's the second season might even be completed. I'm not sure. But the premise is that. uh, It's got to do with um, people going back in time, going forward in time. And then sending emissaries back, something like that, real real time traveling. But so they going forwards in time, to then go backwards. In yeah, time. like well, like in other Makes words, uh, they, um, the point is that they have to go two hundred years in the future, time travel th- those people back to save our culture, something like that. Wayward uh, Pines. It's the it John really Titor cool. type thing. But it sounds gotcha. it sounds gotcha. pretty cool. Wayward Pines, and uh, we've been Bill and I are watching iRobot, which is probably something everybody. Mr. Should. Robot. Mr. Robot. I'm sorry, Mr. Robot. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, iRobot sucks, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Robot. This is with uh, that wonderful fellow. What's his name? Uh, Christian Slater. Christian Slater. He's like Jack Nicholson a little bit. So he's imitating. Uh, very, yeah, he, he, is, he does uh, resemble Jack a little bit. Uh, in some I've always roles. liked him ever since Heathers. But there's a, mo- there's a thing on right now as we speak, literally Uh-oh. on CBS. Okay. And you have to t- – we're taping it because we saw the first episode. It's called Brain Dead. And it's by, I like it already. Yeah, well, it's by this whole group of people who are TV royalty, basically. They just finished The Good Wife. It's Ridley Scott, I believe, again. Um, yeah, and, it is Ridley Scott. He's people. the exec. And this is set in modern day. You know, it's set, <laughs> it's set like Veep or The West Wing in modern day politics moment. And it's a comedy. And there are aliens uh, who suck at your brains. And are sucking out the different, and that's why things are so crazy. Is the way they're 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 pacing it. They're using a lot of Donald Trump footage, a lot of Hillary Clinton footage, a lot of political footage from right now, saying huh. basically the reason this is everything so crazy is because mutant ants from a from a meteor have, has eaten their brains, and they sh- and, and they show it. They show I can the, believe that. I believe yeah, that. 
Yeah, so it's, it sounds legit to me. I'm not calling yeah. Batsquatch on that. That sounds. Yeah, but legit. have you guys been looking at me, Robot, or Doctor Robot, or Mister Robot? Mister no, Robot. No, no, no. Okay, no. you should. You should probably. see it. It's really. I'll try it. It's yeah, really you good. Because I want your opinions, both of you, because you're both the demographic it's shooting for more than us, and I'm curious about it because it basically talks about trying to hack into the world's financial, you know, the Illuminati, trying to hack right, into right, the right. Illuminati, basically. Right. And and they're not, they make no bones about it, you know. And they're the sympathetic hero is a morphine addict, and they're very sympathetic to the morphine addict. So 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 I want to ask. I want to ask. Is morphine like heroin? Morphine is a sleeping. It's, it's an opioid. It, yeah, it's, it's an opioid. It's, it's, it's sleeping derivative from. Yeah, it's a derivative derivative from opiates from mm-hmm. heroin. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, it's a painkiller. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's a, actually if you really want to get, kill somebody, just give them a little morphine for about a week or two. Right. I mean, uh, um, in in the it's book, a killer drug. It is a killer drug. In the book, portrait of the me, artist have, have as drug. a young man, um, Stephen Hero kills his mother by overdosing her. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's charming. It is charming. Um, I have a bit a of James news. Trace I have a bit of myself. good news. I have a bit of good drug news. It's very sketchy the way this drug news came about. But the upshot is that the DEA is due to reschedule pot. They said they were going to do it August 1st. And then another news report came in and said they're going to change it to July 1st, which is next week. Next Friday. Taking it off of Schedule 1 immediately. This is so mind-boggling. Putting it on Schedule 2 with all the other drugs that we were just talking about means that it is de facto a pharmaceutical that you can get a prescription for in any state of the union. And I think that also uh, trumps, so to speak, uh, recreational use, doesn't it? If it's suddenly a behind-the-wall pharmacy well, no, drug? If, uh, it, <clears throat> supposedly, the way the Department of Justice is currently looking at it, that if a state has passed... A recreational marijuana law like Colorado, um, the state of Washington, state Oregon. of Oregon. Yeah. Uh, if they've done California, that, possibly this year. then the federal government is not going to uh, oh, yeah. intervene and preempt the state law. But by moving cannabis from a Schedule One drug, from a Tier 1 drug to a Tier 2 drug, it means that automatically it is under federal law – um, physicians can prescribe it in any state of the union. So even in so you don't state, need a special right. dispens- Okay, so you mean it's just part of your pharmacopoeia? It's a prescription drug. It's, it's like, just like it's if just a doctor literally. prescribes if a doctor prescribes Percocet or Vicodin. Okay, or- and 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 this article, which was a bad article, I, I admit it was from a local. I want to say San. It, it was Santa Monica newspaper or something. Santa Monica, Santa Monica right? Um, they they said they're all, it's only going to be edibles, what they what people are calling medibles, edibles, because um, they're not going to prescribe any kind of smoking as a cure for anything. So you're going to have to use a kind of an edible. Yeah, and I can only tell you. Yeah, some of those edibles work. Yeah, and let me just check here because I want to give a big old shout out to. I our, love edibles. Our, our chat. Oh well, see that's the thing, and and you have to be careful because you could just forget, and it can creep up on you. Okay, so yeah, I have a really funny story with edibles, which maybe one, day, maybe one day I'll share on air. I'm not sure if it's 
What do you mean? Well, I'll, tell you, I'll share mine oh, and we you have, can share yeah, yours. Share, share. Okay. Here's mine. Share. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was no, a first it. year. I was a first year instructor of English at Trenton State College. You already told this story on in the, the air tray. Night, yes, you did. Did I tell the story? I, I, I don't it's remember. It's the one in the tree, okay, right? Fine. It's the one in the tree, right? I don't. I don't remember hearing that. No, no. no I so told the story. But he already started. I say just let him go. Yeah, go, go. let him ride. Next. Let him go, Bill. Let him ride. So. Uh, uh, one of our students it was an elder student, you know, not old man, but you know, when you're twenty three, uh, when you're twenty three, anybody who's twenty five or older is older. And True. he yeah. got some. He's gotten some some THC capsules, and so we were at his house. He he, uh, he lived out in Princeton Township. We were at his house. Uh, there were three of us there, three uh, three members of the faculty, and and this guy, and he said, "You, you got to try these tablets." Now, I was a graduate student, and I can tell the CIA story on another time. But I was a graduate student in Greenwich Village in the middle 1960s, and I can tell you that in the middle 1960s in Greenwich Village, it was drug city because all the rock and roll groups from England would come over and they'd stay at this one hotel called the Hotel Albert. It was on the corner of 10th Street and University Place. And the drugs were, I mean, you would see people flying out in the street screaming. And this was... uh, Why don't you write your own memoirs, by the by? I really should. This should be in them. It should be. This is fine. And so... I agree. This was like... And so here I was, a graduate student counselor in, in, in an upper class dorm you know for older students you know uh, juniors and seniors and it was a co-ed dorms you can imagine what that was going on with and so but the um, the level of drugs in in this dorm so i had had my experience anyway now flash forward gee flash forward two years and uh, we're in Princeton Township and so this this person says here you've got to try these pills these pills are great well, we were actually, after the first hallucinations died down, we climbed this tree in his backyard, three of the three of us, not even wearing clothing, or at least oh, not that much that clothing. Well, really? we you were, were naked? It was ne- dead. It was like the dead of, it was right before school started. So it was those really hot days at the very end of August. It was brutal. And here we are up in this tree on this 95 degree. Well, it was an 85 degree When is Midsummer Night? What? When is Midsummer Night for all the romantics out there? What night should you be? Besides tonight, I guess. Midsummer Night's Dream? I think tonight might be a night that witches and warlocks might go dancing about. That's right. It's the summer solstice. Summer solstice. I bet perhaps that's the case. Yeah, if you go outside, you'll probably see some witches and warlocks and and, and fairies. Um, but 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 when is because I want to recommend as you talk about climbing naked in trees as a youth as a fawn, you know a young young person. I wanted to recommend I had hair. Woody Allen's wonderful Midsummer Night's Love Story. Movie. Oh yeah, fabulous! One of those movie. beautiful movies. You I would really be careful uh, climbing them trees. <laughs> I know. Yeah, might, might, might catch a ball. I know, I know. It's, it was dangerous. So here we are sitting up in the tree and we all decide to sing the 12 days of Christmas because we're sitting in a pear tree. Yeah. And well, we start caterwauling this song 
and we are stoned out of our minds and suddenly flashlights are playing on us and it's the Princeton Township Police. And I was saying to myself, that's it. I am, I am, it's the end of us. We're all doomed. We're going to go to jail. And, and this was Princeton. So the police basically say, just whatever you're doing, calm it down. People are complaining. Shut up. And you may want to get out of that tree because there are ants in that tree. And you're not wearing any clothing. And they left. And how old, how old were your children at this point? I didn't have I didn't any. Know I was you. 23 oh, you were years 23. old. Okay, good. Good. Jeff wasn't go. born until I was, uh, the following year. Okay, so there you go, carefree. I don't remember hearing that, that story before, Nancy. That's first. Seriously? Nancy's heard a, you know, a little bit about it one day. You just didn't get in the full depth of it. Right. I think Nancy's heard it so many times that she just, you know, she thinks we've yeah, all heard that, it a billion that times. Before, that was before we got together. And by the time we got together, I used oh. to... So he used to be the enemy yep. of fun because his, his uh, fun days were behind him. It's true. You know, and then we became parental units and, and the rest is history. That's and the fact, problem. When you're you know, a parental unit, the fun stops. That's Very right. true. You have to get I, serious. Yeah, I haven't had a kid yet, so I don't have to get serious. No, no, no. It, it's true. People don't well, realize Chris, that, that, there is a fun, <laughs> yeah. that there is a fundamental divide in life. Pre-children... Yep. Post children, post children. Yeah. I, I can tell you, you are never the same person. Oh, uh, when we were living in California, we we're living on our boat in California. We get this phone call from uh, one of our sons. Um, he had a car accident, and we had to go get him. He was at the hospital, and 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 we looked at each other across this boat, which actually only had a beam of thirteen feet, and we both flashed back to that one day when that kid was three years old and ran head first into a dumpster and mm. split his whole head open and, and we had to take him to the hospital for stitches. And we're saying, my God, it never ends. Mm -hmm. It never ends. Yep. And we had to go yeah. drive and it's pick this it. kid up. And we were all worried and it's upset and everything. Oh, what are we going to see? What are we going to see? And so, <laughs> and so here's the funny part about it. Well, it wasn't funny for him, but for us... <laughs> It, it was the first time I knew that I had cataracts because I really couldn't see driving at night. And then he just had an accident and he began freaking out in the car. You mean you're driving and you can't see? Um, <laughs> that always gets everybody in our It always does. It always so makes scared. people nervous. I don't know why. Because but I anyway, tell Bill where to go. You yeah, know, I'm basically I mean, his If eyes. you memorize the road, unless yeah, there's something in front eyes. of you. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd be terrified. <laughs> just saying. But, but – um, but uh, uh, so we get there, and so we were thinking, what if the police were blaming him? What if there are police all over the place? So in order to get in and get out, uh, um, we were all wearing our um, federal law enforcement regalia from the time that we were at the FBI Academy doing a story about the DEA and this major drug sting around the world. And so we all had our our swag from hats. the FBI Academy, yeah, you know, our FBI, our FBI Academy sweatshirts, my law enforcement uh, polo shirt. Swag. And swag. so we're wearing that. And so he sees us walk in. I was wearing my sheriff's hat. And so he was like, you know, on the floor laughing, <laughs> uh, just saying, I can't believe this. <laughs> and yeah, um, that's funny. <laughs> if you, if you guys, uh, want to join in chat, you can go to psn-radio.com and look for the listen live in chat, big old obvious button, and you will come there. And, and Very I obvious. Want, 
Yeah, and we have a um, a, one of our listeners. <clears throat> we have a Skype chat, Nancy. We have a Skype P- chat. PJ Zimmerling. Good. Skype chat. Yeah. What, yeah. what did I say? Did I, I, don't say know, I don't know where you were going with that. It was, okay. There's there just... some coughing in the middle there. and Yeah, no, I'm looking at A little hesitation on your part. I don't know where you were going, Nancy. The coughing, sorry. I'm sorry. I do apologize. Uh, I have a cough button, but I didn't use it. So yeah, PJ uh-huh. says uh-huh. that naked and naked are very different. I that agree. Na- naked is unclothed, but naked is unclothed and up to but, no good. But yeah, neither okay, one of them compares to bucket naked. Bucket naked. Um, you should give the phone number. Because I knew you were going to say that. Folks can call in and ask Mike Schratt questions <laughs> right. about the secret space program. The number to call is seven eight six seven six two four five eighty one twenty seven. Say it again. Impossible to remember. Say it again. Seven eight six. Two four five eight one two seven. We'll have to come up with a jingle or something. But see, Bill and I were just talking very before the show. We have our good microphone set up now. Now we're going to have to come up, Angel, with jingles and things for our show. You have to. Of yeah, course. we're going to come up with stuff because now, but and that, we can also do commercials for books and things. Yeah, but th- that number rolls right off the tongue. Seven eight six two four five eight one two seven. No, no, east no. East of the Rockies, west of the Rockies. No, no, it's from. wrong. You did it. No, you did, it. You did it. No, I didn't. Seven eight six. What's wrong? Two four five eight one two seven. I missed your two four. No, I did. I missed it. You missed it, but I said it. Yeah. So listen, uh, before, <laughs> as we get to the end of our little half hour, who is going to be your guest on Wednesday? Oh, Wednesday, Wednesday. We got Mister E himself, Joe Sworn, is going to be on the show. Well, do you think I can sit that one out? You know? <laughs> that's that's going to be a fun show. Let me tell you. Me and him go back. I know, and I fear that. Way. I fear that. I wish you could have been there this last Wednesday, Nancy. Which Why? Oh, it's great. It, we had such a great show. Yeah, you know, I, I I I was kind of talking to the air, and I was actually going to call you. There were several times. Yeah, and then you hooked him with Weisfrog. I loved that. Yeah, that was yeah, great. Yeah. That was a great show. I like hijacking another show. We crashed um, the Wise Frogs Arizona. Yeah, Arizona I like show. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's a good. That's a good. Uh, well, a, here's a here's a bit of news Frog for Seth. Wise sounds really good, by the way. Here's on, a bit of news for Seth. Uh, that Alan the, Bill Alan. Oh, it's Alan on the show. I he goes, never Alan, get his yeah. name straight. Anyway, <laughs> well, it, that's, it, he's not listening. His real name is Seth, but he wants to be called Alan because he doesn't want you know. Something stupid. Have, I don't know. It's kind of gay, right? It's a little bit gay. It's a little gay. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> is it gay? Real? Anyway, so so. Uh, <laughs> Alan is probably not Seth. Yeah, no, no, no. Seth. It's probably a, it's probably a split personality. That's the problem. Definitely. Yes. Nailed it on the head right there. Anyway, <laughs> poor guy. Uh, there is in development right now a for Alan. A warp engine that NASA believes, because they're investing money in this thing, that can actually go faster than the speed of light. A warp. Whoa. I think we talked about that, didn't we, Chris? I will send you the article. So. Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, I think we 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 we've covered that on the last show. Yeah, no, that's amazing. If if uh, if true, I mean, that would make going to a star system like super quick. I mean, well, it would be it would be basically what's the, like what's the propulsion. The propulsion is this. The concept of it, and I sent this article to John Lear. This, this was in the, uh, today's issue <laughs> oh. of Cosmos. Yeah. <laughs> I sent it to John Lear. For uh, what? It, it, what? For why? 
because John Lear was the one who on UFO Hunters told me about this theory and how Bob Lazar had explained it to him, ah. which was that rather than pushing the spacecraft forward, this particular yep. propulsion system drew space and time around Towards. it. Mm-hmm. Like you throw a bowling ball on a bed. And no. Right. Yeah, we'll see. And and by the uh, way, there is a, there's of. a br- there are a bunch of YouTubes on YouTube right now with ki- little kids on one side of a kind of like foam mattress and fathers and and big guys hopping on the other side and then the kid goes flying and then the, the and then it's pretend they pretend the kid flies out the window and stuff. But it's amazing how far a kid will fly. And you should look at these YouTubes who kind of never try that with a kid, not realizing how far, you know. And why did I bring that up? I have, I have no, no idea. idea. No clue, Nancy. Real quick, before we go on break, though, I wanted to uh, give two uh, quick shout-outs, uh, you know, new listeners to the show. Okay. Oh. Shout out. My brother's in the other room listening, so shout-out to my brother. Oh, good. Oh, wow. Hello, yeah, brother. What's your brother's name? name? What's your brother's R- name? Roberto. Howdy, Roberto. Or actually, Robert. I, you know, I hope you like Hispanic. the show. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> Robert. Robert. Or we could or call him Bobberto. Bobberto. Uh, I, I, I like that. Bobberto, I like that. And the second person is a friend from work, actually. She's listening for the first time. Her name is Andreina, and uh, she's really cool people. So, shout-outs to her, Andreina. So, we are your co-hosts, Bill and Nancy Burns, on Future Theater Live, on PSN Radium, the Dark Matter Digital Network. We will be back after these messages with our guest, Michael Schratt a military aviation historian who's going to talk about the secret space program, the black budget space program, and planes that literally can be launched from existing aircraft, the SR-72, for example, the SR-75, into low Earth orbit. So we're going to talk about the Star Wars missile defense, a lot of great stuff, and the Cash Landrum case. Back after this. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction. Are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California Gold Rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more. 
The George Rodriguez Show. Who? I said The George Rodriguez Show. You don't know George Rodriguez? Wasn't he the guy that filled in for Neil Rogers? Yes. That George Rodriguez. What's he like? Oh, he's a short little Cuban fellow. Kind of funny looking. Well, when's he on? 12 to 3, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on SoFloRadio.com and SoFloRadio.net. The George Rodriguez Show is much more than adequate. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call key information solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com our guest, military aviation historian, scholar, researcher, um, really writing some great reports, which I think Nancy's linked to our website, Michael Schratt. Also, his most famous position was being a guest on UFO Hunters. Thank you, Michael, for joining us. Hi, Bill. Thanks for letting me be a part of your program. I'm really happy to have you. Um, Michael, you have done some really fabulous reporting on the Secret Space Program, the Black mm-hmm. Budget Program. You did a really um, great report uh, on one of my favorite um, UFO stories, the Hudson Valley sightings. Correct. And uh, uh, part of that report actually was spilling over into the Phoenix Lights, which I want to ask you about. And so uh, of all these cases, Michael, um, what, what brought you into this research discipline? 
Um, I'm a concerned taxpayer. I want to know where my tax dollars are disappearing. Bill, as you know, there are multiple billions of dollars being funneled into deep black unacknowledged special access programs, specifically within the Lockheed Skunk Works, Northrop Black Widow Group, Boeing Phantom Works. And so that's really where I want to focus my attention. And that's what I've uh, really endeavored to do over the years. Well, how, how did you how did you come to define that for yourself, Michael? What is your background? What do you bring to the research? Uh, I'm a private pilot uh, with a glider rating, a power rating. Um, what I can bring to the research is uh, there needs to be someone that puts boots on the ground and actually interviews the Lockheed Skunk Works engineers, people who worked under Kelly Johnson, people who worked under Ben Rich. A uh, gentleman who worked under uh, Phantom Works, which used to be a McDonnell Douglas program, people who worked under the Northrop Black Widow Group, and that's uh, what I bring to the table. And also, you know, spending multiple months within research libraries, uh, examining technical articles, following up on personnel, and through that, I've put together a legacy of stealth aircraft, how this got started under DARPA, U.S. Air Force, how we got with the Have Blue, the Northrop XST, which I provided blueprints for, and then going on to the Blue team at the Pentagon, which was in charge of the early stealth programs, and then under uh, Robert Bond, who was killed in a MiG-23 back in 84. That's the jumping point of the aircraft that we're going to discuss this evening. And they were called the Blue Team at the... They were called the Blue Team, yes. It was a group of Pentagon Air Force personnel that ran the office at the Pentagon um, that was really in charge of of these programs. Talking about the A-12 Avenger II, Mm -hmm. Have Blue, F-117A, those are the type of aircraft. But then, you know, there's another tier that go beyond what you can see at your public air show. And, you know, certainly we can discuss some of those tonight as well. Oh, yeah. And I know you've discussed the uh, the Aurora Project. And, of course, Bill Scott was uh, from Aviation Week and Space Technology was writing about the – and he – the Aurora Project – I guess, 20, 25 years ago. And the thing was, Bill Scott told me, one of my good friends, we've written a couple of books together. He told me that he was getting such pushback from, um, oh, who was that guy? He's dead now with Uh, the camera. Phil Class. Phil Class. Phil Class was working Uh on Aviation Week and Space Technology. He was working there for the CIA. I mean, he was there. Mm doing CIA work on Aviation Week and he was really giving Bill a hard time about stuff like the Aurora Project, saying, oh, it's not true, there is no space plane, never existed, and of course you've pointed out, you've corroborated a lot of what Bill is writing about, that it really did exist. Well, I mean, there there could be any number of vehicles that fall under the quote-unquote Aurora family. Let's just give a case in point here. Now, uh, the original Aurora sighting as you know, Bill, took place on August of 1989. Uh, that was the Chris Gibson sighting over the Galveston Key oil drilling platform where he saw a KC-135, which was flanked on the left side by two F-111s that had their wings extended. And then directly in back of the KC-135, there was a 75-degree swept-wing black triangle, which appeared to be in refueling mode that was directly behind the KC-135. And and since this was a very solid sighting by Chris Gibson, who's a reliable source, he was the uh, Royal Observers Corps 
uh, you know, top three with, for, for years at a time. He was trained to identify any military aircraft in the world in less than one second. So for him to see this aircraft, we can take it to the bank. And the fascinating thing about that was, look at all the experiments that were going on with neutral buoyancy aircraft in the 1980s, these very large, um, capable aircraft. And when, and I mean, you pointed out how even as early as the uh, Hudson Valley sightings, mm-hmm. um, how people said they were able to see in between the lights, among the lights on the tips of these triangles, they could see trusses, I guess you use the word trusses and cross beams, almost as though there was some kind of um, cloaking device that where you could see through the skin of the craft into the, um, the interior. I mean, could you talk about that? Sure, sure. Be, be glad to, Bill. You know, looking at this, as you have as well, Bill, um, over the past few decades here. Personally, I believe there are three cases that we need to, to take home with. You know, if we take nothing home at all, there should be two, uh, three cases uh, within our uh, group here. Uh, number one, of course, Cash Landrum, which is just legendary. Number two, Hudson Valley Boomerang. And then number three, the Belgium Triangle. So when we talk about the Hudson Valley Boomerang, it's important to note that this is between 1982 and 1989, over 25,000 eyewitnesses reported a gigantic, repeat, gigantic boomerang or V-shaped craft that hovered silently. It also, according to some eyewitnesses, had a very low-frequency electrical humming noise. And on the night of March 24th, 1983, which, Bill, is a very interesting date because, number one, it's a Thursday, which is very important. Number two, it took place one day, exactly 24 hours after Reagan delivered his SDI address to the Mm -hmm. nation, launching the Star Wars program. So there could be a connection here, too. But what I'm trying to point out here is as this Hudson Valley boomerang was tracking north along the Taconic State Freeway there, um, it was making a zigzagging motion and then stopping, hovering over the freeway people pulled off to the side of the road, slammed on their brakes, and were looking up at this gigantic boomerang-shaped craft, which, according to the eyewitnesses in uh, Night Siege by Jalen Hynek um, and Phil Imbrogno, the eyewitness reported seeing what they said are, quote, tubes, pipes, and cylinders on the bottom of the craft. It also had multicolored flashing lights that would flash off in sequence, like reds, yellows, blues, and whites, And according to Stanton Friedman, which I thought was interesting coming from Stanton, um, his assessment is wings on an extraterrestrial interplanetary spaceship could only be decoration. Those are his exact words. So the fact that it has wings, number one, tells you that there could be a man-made origin of this craft for, for sure, no doubt about it. Yeah, but, but the, many many planets have atmosphere, according to you know the movies. So you would need um, wings at some point to maneuver through atmospheres. Yes. It would seem. Yes, um, that, sure that that would make sense. But if you're out in space and you're an interplanetary spaceship, you wouldn't need wings at that point, though. Um, they they would only be for decoration. I yeah, think but the, but the know, uh, the the lore has always been that the things that we see here on this planet are only babies coming out of the mothership, which is hidden someplace and is so huge. And that would, the mothership would be the interstellar part. And these that, little guys. That's very possible too. That's oh. very possible too. 
Absolutely. absolutely. One of the things, uh, one of the things I'm that speaking with absolutely no. no I mean, one of the things that oh, Bill Scott know, was commenting on about this is that we were experimenting with these kinds of craft all the way back, all the way back in the 1980s. That that these craft had a a triple purpose. It was a black budget mm-hmm. funded craft. So right. one purpose would have been obviously uh, it was neutral buoyancy, but the other purpose was that imagine a craft so large that it could transport large amounts of troops uh, um, in a suborbital in, in a suborbital um, uh, a mission from one place to another in under a matter of 24 hours. So if you had to move large sure. groups of troops, you could do that. But it also had, and I thought this was fascinating, it also had a civilian use. Imagine FedEx and UPS and the Postal Service using devices like this for packages. So, right. I mean, it would revolutionize uh just it would revolutionize the commercial world of package delivery. It seems minor, but imagine imagine that it has this dual purpose. And when you think of World War II and you think of how ships like the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth were pressed into service as troop carriers across the Atlantic when American troops were going over to England to stage um, for the invasion of Normandy and things like that. Uh, when you think about that, these were ocean liners commandeered by the military as troop carriers. Well, what about the same exact model except it's not a steamship, it's a floating triangle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, one other quick point, Bill. Now, this is from the Philadelphia Inquirer. I, I don't want you to get my words. I want you to hear it directly from the eyewitnesses themselves. Now, this is Dennis Sand, Philadelphia Inquirer, September 28, 1984. This is what he describes seeing. He says here, quote, As it hovered, I could make out dark, smoky-colored metallic beams underneath. Huge, huge beams. I guess I always anticipated being scared by a UFO, but I wasn't. Um, then, it, then it goes on to here, and it, it talks about uh, Monique O'Driscoll, who her daughter, whose name was Monique as well, saw this fly directly over their car, and it parked itself over a frozen lake, and they could see the reflection. This is what she said. Um, it says, I could see the underbelly part. It's solid. It had metal-type work like cross beams and tubular things hanging down here and there. I was so close, I could have thrown a ball and hit it. So this is coming from Monique O'Driscoll, who is right below it. The, um, a very similar description, or should I say descriptions, came mm-hmm. out of the folks looking at the Phoenix Lights Triangles. The 830 lights, not the 1030 lights, the 830 lights. Well, also um, uh, Stephenville. Um, well, Stephenville was different, but this was this was a triangle over Phoenix. And these were residents who were said the same thing. It was so close. I could have thrown a rock and hit it. And they just watched this thing float right down through Paradise Valley uh, all the way to the um, toward the Mexican border. And. They were astonished. Not a sound. It was mm-hmm. floating. It seemed to hover. And they were so transfixed. And this is what always got to me when I was sp- speaking to the witnesses. 
they were so transfixed by this object that they went out on their balconies because if you know that whole Paradise Valley area in the Phoenix suburbs, the houses are very high, like cliff dwellers. They're, they're very high. And the Flying Triangle was flying at the at the same height, the same altitude as some of these balconies. So they're seeing this thing literally only a few feet away. And this one person said that they were having a school board meeting or some parent's school meeting in her house. Mm -hmm. They saw this object out the window. The meeting stopped. Now, this is fascinating. The meeting stopped. They walked outside and they were all watching this thing, almost transfixed by it. As it floated by, they went inside and nobody talked about what they saw. They went right back huh. to the meeting. Why would that be? Well, would the, um, would the craft that we, I put on the website, the one from Woodhead in England, yeah. would yeah. that also be a similar sighting in that they were able to see occupants? And it was, again, it looks like it has kind of struts on the yes, uh, drawing. It, 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 Yep, it does have struts. Now, I'm looking at the original sketch by the eyewitness, and then the, the AutoCAD drawing that I made is up there uh, on the website. But let me, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me just read you what he says here. Now, this is directly from the uh, eyewitness. Mm -hmm. um, it says, um, okay, um, the side of the craft appeared to have several illuminated windows, and at one of the windows I saw two to three figures that appeared to be human. Certainly nothing about, the, nothing about the figures made me think they were anything other than human, reinforcing my belief that the craft was a military project. So he saw this cross-beam and girder construction as well. Was his sighting silent? I believe or, so, yes. Or, or, yes. or did he hear the humming? Mm -hmm. he, he was in the car um, departing a Fleetwood Mac concert with his wife, who was asleep in the passenger's uh, side of the car. And he uh, kind of pulled off to the side of the road, rolled up the window, and saw this craft about 100 feet per side emerge from a dark, misty cloud. And he did a really nice sketch. And this didn't make it into David Marler's book, but this is one of his best cases. Mm -hmm. well, 1990. It was th yeah, right. And then the uh, the other um uh, two things you pointed out, I mean, things that I knew from talking to Phil Imbroglio uh, were, uh, were uh, about the book Night Siege. Uh, which he wrote with Jalen Hynek, was that the whole Hudson Valley sightings for all those years, this is the weird part. And I don't know how much of this is true and how much of this isn't. But first of all, the, to, to me, the, uh, the major, one of the major factors in invalidating the reality of this, of these sightings, was the presence of J. Allen Hynek. Because it was J. Allen Hynek, who after the Hillsdale, Michigan sightings in 1966, said the right. whole thing was swamp gas. It's swamp gas. Now, there were residents in Hillsdale, Michigan, who actually saw figures, actually saw humanoid figures coming out of some of these craft that had landed. And this was mm -hmm. covered on CBS. Walter Cronkite did a special about it. Um, it, were, it was this incident that prompted then-Representative Jerry Ford, because Hillsdale was in his district as a representative, that prompted Representative Jerry Ford to write to Mendel Rivers, who was the head of the Armed Services Committee, and, and demand that Congress 
investigate. In fact, Congress did investigate this. The Science and Technology Committee did investigate this. One of only two congressional investigations into UFOs um, investigate this. And so that was the Hilldale, Michigan sightings. But now, what, uh, almost 30 years later, uh, 25 years later, Jay Allen, that same Jay Allen Hynek is working with Phil and Rugno on the Hudson Valley sightings. So there was obviously a, a real change of Hynek's mentality from official paid government debunker to official UFO investigator. You know, what's interesting too, Bill, is the timing of both events. If you look at when these took place, March 24th, 1983 was a Thursday night. March 13th, 1997, Phoenix Lights was a Thursday night as well. Now, what's the significance, you know, of Thursday nights? Um, it appears, Bill, that uh, test flights of classified aircraft take place on Thursday nights because Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday is for pre-flight. Thursday is the test flight. Friday is debrief. Saturday, Sunday, there's no activity. So that's why Thursdays are used for the test flight. So when you hear about something happening on a Thursday, we should be very wary mm. that this might be something ET. More likely, it's one of our black aircraft. It's true. And and when to, to and know. when the Maryland that's a good thing to know because I had yeah. you know my encounters uh, on a Saturday. And then the other one, I think, happened like on a on a Friday or something. So, Chris, you know that that's funny. You you bring up your encounter. Um, ask Michael if if in his research he's encountered anything that is similar to what you saw, and explain to him what you saw so he knows exactly. That's, yeah, that's good. Uh, to make a jump through, uh, I in 2011 on August 18th, I had had on the first encounter, I had had a uh, huge disc in the field that was just about half a mile from me, uh, I would say, gosh, it had to be about a mile in size. It had a huge glass. Uh, to me, it didn't look like a glass dome. It looked like a diamond dome. Da -da -da, I had been waiting for it to come back. 11 days later, that was the 18th. It was technically the weather 27th. But 11 days later, uh, my son and I were out there watering, and we'd had a close encounter with a UFO orb uh, six feet from us, uh, I could have touched it. We could both my son and I could see perfectly in it. We've been featured in in Open Minds and and um, the uh, Mufon Monthly Journal and all that featured us and all that. But anyway, uh, inside of it, we could see it was a bubble. It was about five foot and five foot in diameter. It was like Nancy was like saying like a, a bill like a soap bubble, but it was like a it was like a like a mag electric kind of. And inside of it had all this golden dust. It was so much. It was just floating around this clear sphere. I would say hmm, about the size of a beach ball, and it was spinning backwards. The whole apparatus of the the bubble and everything was spinning backwards while it was going forward. And inside the clear sphere was this red glow, hairy red glow. It was a red liquid, which must have been what kind of what Bob Lazar talked about, what element 115. Anyway, and um, it went spinning away from us about 12 feet. I go into the whole story, but in a, in a quick hindsight, <laughs> that's what happened to my son and I. And well, my good friends here have gave me the opportunity to get my story out and be here on the radio and be part of this to get it out. But that's what happened to us. Hmm, not sure what that would be. Don't that's know what, what that might be. 
<laughs> well, yeah. either either one, either the one the first night, the the huge one that felt like diamond. On to get to the first enc- on night with the first <clears throat> encounter, and the first encounter with the huge disc. Now that was had the huge glass diamond looking dome on top of it. Now on the to kind of had to jump through on the second encounter. Well, my son had seen two discs right after we seen the orb go by two smaller craft that were above the neighbor's house. Um, they also had a bubble uh, on top of them, too, that he had drew in the, in the pictures on the MUFON report. He was only nine and a half. So um, I did, don't know if it was glass or anything. To me, it looked like diamond. It looked like a straight diamond. Well, the weird thing, the weird thing is, Chris, your sightings always remind me of Wizard of Oz, um, high level fairy tale stuff, because when you describe all the gold dust, it's almost like too magical to imagine that you're seeing this, this orb in which there's stuff flowing. I mean, it would be like you, it would be like you're seeing a real life fairy just kind of come down on your lawn. It it is. You might have, you know, let's go. Maybe, you know. I mean, maybe uh, it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't. Ex- you know, maybe it wasn't extraterrestrial at all. Maybe sure. he did have an encounter with some supernatural phenomenon. And it's not extraterrestrial. You know, you Marley know. Lights. I was going to real quick on Marley Lights. Ted talked about when he had had the encounter with with whatever that it exploded. If you might remember, into what the Marfa Lights? Of, yeah. yeah, into a bunch of different pieces and a bunch of golden dust, and then it floated back into the orb. Well, boom! That just made it what I seen. And close up to the world with all that golden dust, something like easy could go in and out. It could well, be so funny. Side, well, so, size it wanted to. Well, it's so funny when you're talking about the Marfa lights. I want to bring Michael in on this too. There was um, a cover story in Life magazine back Marley during, Marley which, lights. Right? Oh, Marley lights. I thought you meant the Marfa lights. Uh, Marley, uh, the, Marley Woods. No, how dare you, Chris? You confused him. I did. You were confused. You Ted Phillips completely threw the show off. Ted Phillips, the <laughs> Ted sure. Phillips. That's, no, it's not the more. It's yeah, like it's watching Marley, a robot no, 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 break no. down. Time out it's for real. Marley, <laughs> sorry, guys. It's the Marley Woods lights. If it's Ted Phillips, okay, it's I'm Ted sorry. Phillips and Tom Ferraro. It's it's the Marley Woods lights. And Marley Woods, by the way, is a fake name. Um. It's in. It's up in the Ozarks. Can I? Br- I want to bring in a cre- uh, a question from chat. Just, just go ahead. Because you mentioned um, the red fluid, and you mentioned possibly that that always brings up uh, Lazar and yep. you know unobtainium or whatever he calls it. They're starting to name all those things now. But Michael, have you ever heard of um, in chat? The, the, uh, a person wants to know: Are you relying on Dan Burrish for your research? I am not relying on Dan. Absolutely Burrish, no. not. Okay. I can tell you there flat you out. Go. First of all, what Michael? Um, first of all, I can be the independent witness so saying wait, that Ma- Michael, Michael you know? was talking about this long before Dan oh. Burrish's ugly head popped up on the scene. Oh. Wait, so that's wait, wait, so so you, Michael, are not a protege or anything of Dan Burrish. I am certainly not a protege of Dan Burrish. If if anything, I'm a proto- protege of Ben Rich. But you know, he he's <laughs> not alive to to confirm yeah. that. But. I would love to consider myself a protege of Ben Rich. Well, okay, well, Bill, had, Bill said before you came on the show, I believe it was during the break, that that he had just sent some information to John Lear. And we I wrote, did. Yeah, uh, I go, sent yeah. information to and John so Lear. Was Michael in on that? Was that when no, you no, were no. Here, here, here's what it is. Okay. In Cosmos Magazine, Michael, I'll be happy to send you the article. In Cosmos Magazine, there's a story that NASA 
has begun experimenting with quote unquote, I mean, they just use the name, but it a warp drive. So theoretically, NASA has begun to experiment with the theory that we can go faster than the speed of light, not that the object that's being driven itself is going faster than the speed of light, but that this particular drive draws space and time through it, uh, uh, through it and around it. Hmm. Now, we know in theory that works because when these two large black holes collapsed 1.3 billion years ago, those gravitational waves of space-time are now crossing the Earth, and we're picking them up with the um, inferometer. Um, I think it's in Louisiana that is measuring the um, the passing of these space-time waves over the planet Earth. So theoretically, that happens. Okay, now NASA is exp- um, is beginning to experiment, excuse me, in theory with the idea that you can have a device that actually draws space-time around you. This supposedly was what Bob Lazar, whether or not Bob Lazar is telling the truth, but Bob Lazar told John Lear about this element 115 and element 116, that element 116 decomposes to element 115, which then decomposes, and there's so much energy, it actually sucks space and time through it. And if there's a craft built around that propulsion system, that craft doesn't See, that move was through space and time, but space and time moves around the craft. And that's the theory that... Bob Lazar explained to John Lear. So when I saw the article in Cosmos magazine, I thought of that story, but I also thought of what you were talking about when you were talking about the secret space program and the black budget work. That, and of course, Ben Rich saying things like, we are so far beyond what you think you're seeing. We have right. such great technology. We actually have the technology to send ET home that I was thinking about that as well. So I'll send you the article. Okay, okay. Uh, you know, uh, one since thing we're I... on, the, on the subject of, of Ben Rich, uh, I thought we should mention the very well-done research of Bill Scott. He, he's got to get credit. Uh, as, as you know, Bill, it was the uh, March 6th. 2006 issue of Aviation Week Space Technology that had the cover Black Star, Another Groom Lake Secret. Now, when this article came out, um, within a matter of hours, uh, Bill told me they had like 86,000 hits on the Absolutely. website. It was the and largest, it, yes. Yeah. It was, yes. Why was he it, it allowed, was a, to, why was he allowed to, why would, did they give him the okay to go with that? Bill told, uh, because th- this go ahead. Was, this was near, near Bill's retirement and he had been collecting tidbits of information about the Black Star program for 16 years. And he decided, well, we, could, we have two choices. We can let this information die and be buried in a vault and never see the light of day, or we'll give it a shot and we'll run it. And uh, he, he felt that there was enough meat on the bone, and it was, uh, it was green-lighted by the other people at Aviation Week, and they went with it. And I think it's good that they did. Um, however... Bill was crucified by a lot of different people who were very skeptical about this. And I know Aviation Week took a lot of hits for it, but I don't think they were grounded because the people who did the criticizing never bothered to personally interview the primary eyewitness. And that's the key to the case. 
Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Michael, uh, what do you think about that? Okay. Uh, let me let me break it down really quickly here, Bill. Um, after the Challenger explosion on January 28, 1986, the defense department basically lost their quote-unquote assured access to space. That's a key term they use within the spook groups, assured access to space, because 85% of all shuttle cargoes within the payload bay of the shuttle were classified DOD-type satellites, uh, keyhole satellites, things for the National Reconnaissance Office, National Security Agency. This is the thing that they were launching. Uh, civilian payloads were taking a back seat. So after the Challenger exploded, they lost that assured access to space. But then coincidentally, Bill, uh, with the Challenger explosion, they started going to boosters, and they also had booster failures too, which is just unprecedented that this would happen to the shuttle and then also the boosters. So not only did they lose the shuttle access to space, but the boosters were failing too. So a, a, an urgent cry went out to the defense contractors. I'm talking about Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, Rockwell, and Lockheed. An urgent cry went out to these defense contractors on the West Coast, and they said, gentlemen, we need a rapid response two-stage to orbit space plane that can get a satellite into orbit immediately and also a weapons platform. Can you do it? And so there was a crash program that took place in the late 1980s. Uh, development took place in the early 1990s, and first flight was probably somewhere around 93, 94. Uh, this was confirmed by multiple witnesses, including a F-15 pilot who saw a space plane at Hallman Air Force Base in February 1994. It had, it had made an emergency landing at Kadena Air Force Base, and I've got the original letter here from John Andrews, who was Senior Project Design Engineer, Testers Model Corporation in San Diego, California. I'll read this to you really quick here. This is Kadena Air Force Base, the weekend of February 12th, 13th, 1994. It says, uh, emergency call from manned aircraft to expedite recovery at Kadena Air Force Base coming from north track speed at Mach 4.2. Uh, other aircraft were diverted from the area. And then it says aircraft recovered and quickly placed in secure hangar, Red 3 lockdown, declared at base. Other pilots landing kept and slept in ready quarters and a white C-5 Galaxy pulled in to pick it up. So basically they put the whole base down on lockdown for three days as they loaded this craft into what they called a modified C-5 galaxy with chipmunk cheek extensions on the lower fuselage side, Bill. Um, once it was loaded in, it was flown to Holloman Air Force Base. It taxied to the end of the runway there, and then um, the, the big clamshell door on the C-5 opened up, and then on what looked like an F-16 engine dolly, they had this space plane called Black Star. Uh, Bill called it the XOV. It also was named Speedy and Black Magic, the experimental orbital vehicle. It was tipped up at about a 15-degree angle so it could fit within the cargo bay of the C-5. And as it was pulled out, um, it was a very slow procedure, and um, it took about four hours to unload this. Now, this, this was seen by an aircraft mechanic at Hullum Air Force Base who was near the hangar area. And he immediately went to his F-15 pilot, who was a transient at the time, and he said, hey, look it over, what's going on over here? So this F-15 pilot jumped in the cockpit of his F-15 and pulled out a pair of binoculars, 
and he was looking through the binoculars, watching this whole activity as this was all going on. And he started sketching this craft uh, with a with a pencil and paper. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a copy of that pencil sketch and then made a very accurate rendering of what this craft actually looks like, Bill. And that's essentially what took place. And, you know, it's so okay. So here here are the ironies in your story, which is which are funny in the late 1970s. We had uh, a lot of problems with our space programs and the Soviets were able and this is what was a real fear that the Soviet Union had developed the technology of getting rockets into space very quickly, satellite launching rockets into space very quickly. So we were afraid that not only could the Soviets out-satellite us, yeah. but that the Soviets had the capability, which we believe they have now, as well as the Chinese, of sending kill sats, killer satellites up to knock out whatever uh, satellites we had. So the Air Force was panicked about the ability to get satellites into space quickly. That's why we developed this whole thing called the nano satellite program, which would be strings of connected um, tiny satellites, which were redundant, that even if there were an explosion in space, let's say that China decided to use a high-energy laser, for example, for its own anti-missile program to take out satellites. The nanosatellites, which could be launched very quickly, would manage to survive. So there was that um, intense program back in the 1970s and 80s about getting satellites into space. And But the other thing was that um, we had a plan uh, literally on paper, it was called Project Horizon, back in the 1950s, that was discovered by the then head of Army R&D, uh, General Arthur Trudeau, to put a fortified military base on the moon. Literally, the plan called for an entirely new Army command, not an Air Force command, but an Army command uh, consisting of... Um, the, uh, the, uh, the signal corps, the engineering corps, the artillery, the field artillery, literally putting together a fortified place on the moon. And as I think you've said, I think you've said it uh, very eloquently, one of the reasons that never happened is we were basically forced off the moon. You presented a slide in one of your talks. This was for the Secret Space Program talk. And yes. you presented a slide that I wrote the specifics on. I want to learn more about. But supposedly Neil Armstrong said that we were chased off. Right? Uh, that, that definitely came from uh, Timothy Good. I didn't make that up. That's from mm -hmm. his book. So, you know, we have to rely on what Timothy dug up. But that's what uh, uh, Neil, Neil <clears> said, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he went on to yep. say, he, he happened to spend some time mentioning that their spacecraft were huge, humongous. He, I forget the word he used, you know, like way bigger than ours. In other words, there would be no contest. Yep, I, I've got the slide up right here. Um, this is the transaction. It says, Professor, what really happened out there with Apollo 11? Armstrong, it was incredible. Of course, we had always known there was a possibility. The fact is we were warned off. There was never any question of a space station or a moon city. Professor, how do you mean warned off? Armstrong, I can't go into details except to say their ships were far superior to ours both in size and technology. 
boy, they were big and menacing. No, there is no question of a space station. So this is um, page 186 above top secret. And doesn't that raise your suspicions about Apollo 13? About that explosion <clears throat> well, on Apollo 13? What, what I think is, is interesting, though, is if this is true... You know, why Why didn't Neil tell us something before he passed away? What, was there a, a posthumous videotape that will be released? What do you well, think, who, Bill? Who I was, mean, we, we've never prof- heard. Who was the professor in those quotes that he said those things to? Um, it doesn't name the professor, but it, it does name the, oh, it's Pamela Hanford, MI6 member. Hmm. That's who it is. That's who it came from. That's the source. This was a because space that's, conference that's, in Italy in June of 1984. It's profound what he's saying. It's very profound. It's very and, profound, yeah. And disturbing. I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, uh, because it, it stands to reason, after all the hype that President Kennedy made about getting into space, and after all the chest thumping that Richard Nixon did about our getting, <laughs> about our getting to the moon, suddenly with all the promise we were going to mine the moon the moon was going to be a launch pad for other missions into space. I mean, I can, well, given uh, our I can spend the next hour as a human race, it's um, normal to claim what you land on. Yeah, but I mean, still, I can explain for the next hour why the, um, our going to the moon was so important. Mm-hmm. Then we stopped. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the reason was there's nothing there. I mean, that's crazy. Not only that, Bill, but why did President Reagan on June 11th, 1985, state that he had learned that we had the capability to put 300 people in orbit? Now, yes. how, how could he make that statement? It's a true statement. It's in the diaries. Um, even if we used all our shuttles, Bill, you know we couldn't put 300 people there. So he must have been given a briefing about some other capability. And then every time somebody makes a, a comment and I'm thinking of a lot of news commentators. Oh, Ronald Reagan said, what if aliens were coming to Earth? And he said it to Gorbachev, and then he said it at the UN. But Ronald Reagan had two separate, very dramatic UFO sightings. Once, That's right. Once when he was flying from Los Angeles to Sacramento and saw a UFO, and he had his pilot, he was governor, and he had his pilot chase it out over the Mojave Desert where it disappeared. And another one where he was driving down the Pacific Coast Highway uh, going to a party for William Holden in Hollywood. And uh, he and Nancy Reagan saw a UFO uh, fly over the highway. It wasn't really a highway. Fly over the highway and go out over uh, Santa Monica Bay. And he told everybody at the party for William Holden, and it was the the comedian, the television personality, Lucille Ball, who revealed it and revealed it to <laughs> folks that I knew and, and, and told the whole story. And Reagan wouldn't stop talking about this. I mean, my, uh, I'm trying to get to uh, two people, Patty Davis and Ron Reagan, to find out mm-hmm. if their father ever told them about that particular story. Also, I'm wondering, <laughs> um, I'm trying to ask the chat room, um, if do you got, do you remember a British show that some people believe was true and it was called Plan B or no it was called Space 1999 no 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 no, no. Plan Nine from Outer Space no no no, 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 no. no. I think Michael knows what I'm talking about it's the one where suddenly scientists are disappearing and there has been when you talk about the space you talk about that, alternative three alternative three it's not plan yeah alternative, yeah, alternative three. three right and we were way you, off yeah Plan B. Um, but it's when you talked about the space plane holding 300 people, I don't remember how many people were involved in Alternative B. 
Weren't that many. Three, three. No, no, no. They were more that would go off, would go off, alternative three that would go off planet. You know, there were there 300 <clears throat> or so. It might very well be that there, do you think there's anything to that British show? That that was always a very controversial show. I think it came out on April the 1st. So that was right. another clue. Now, they said it was a science fiction, science uh, documentary. And at the close of that film, there's an alleged shot of a Mars joint uh, American-Russian uh, landing on Mars with a, with a creature at the end. Now, you know, it looks very hokey and phony to me. Uh, again, who knows? But at the very least, we have not been told the truth about the capabilities within the military-industrial complex. Now, certainly, since the Nazis, since um, von Braun... Uh, Dornberger had, uh, you know, worked with the liquid rockets during World War II with the V2. You would think after all these decades, we'd have a much more advanced propulsion system, yet we're still using these liquid rockets. That's the biggest joke of all. Well, Michael, they're going to put out this uh, warp drive uh, in the near future. I, look, NASA has probably advanced technologies that we're nowhere near ever going to be told about it. and they're probably a hundred years in, the, in more advanced so it is preposterous but i have a question for you how much mm -hmm. of uh, the sightings that people see do you think are just us test flying what we have compared to actual real legit ufo sightings right i'm going to give you my my honest and direct answer personally after looking at this for 25 years i think it's 95 percent of what people are reporting as extraterrestrial ufos are in point of fact our own deep black programs that's what so I believe, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking it's 95 percent because at this point it's reached an area where it's seamless now you can't tell who's who anymore exactly. so if, yeah. if, but if why keep it yeah hold on, hold on, Nancy. Yeah, this is a good well, point he's making. Um, the, one reason is because they can. They're, they're that arrogant, and they do need to, to uh, fly these overpopulated areas for psychological it's warfare very operations. Stuff in the middle yep. of this. I mean, that, that orb, what we've seen in the middle of that orb, that stuff looks so deadly. Maybe it wasn't. But, I mean, if this is a highly radiated stuff that, that we're essentially trying to, to outlaw and people are voting for not to, to know that, that we're using this flying over people, that's, that's a huge reason probably why the right. government... Right, and, and the reason I ask why keep it secret is because it almost sounds like, a, as a civilian listening, that they highly polish one project and it gets to a nice place and then they change as you said the wings on it a little bit another couple billion and then they go well, on to, every, everything has upgrades Nancy. but with no but with no feedback doing all this in a black vacuum could right. be the reason it's so expensive and is also seems like crazy toys it's just one toy out doing another toy there's no right. there's no point to this stuff since you're not you know you're not uh hitting isis with this kind of stuff yeah, no, that's actually a, that's a great point. I mean, what is the the end result here? What is the point? I mean, to have world dominance, have uh, to dominate the rest of the world. I mean, but if we're, the, if we're, I'm pretty sure we're not the only ones that have back engineered some aircraft from a downed UFO. I mean, I'm pr I'm pretty um, sure Russia's done it, Germany's probably done it before. So, I mean, what what's the end goal here? Well, interesting you mentioned that, and that's exactly what I'd like to cover now if we can. I want to talk about you know, military aircraft procurement and acquisition. That's a big key factor in the space yep, program. Yep. Um, one, one quick slide I want to discuss here. Uh, this is J.W. Fulbright, 1970. This is a quick quote. It says, the greatest threat to American national security is the American military establishment 
and the non-holds-barred type of logic it uses to justify its zillion-dollar existence. Wow. I mean, that sums it up right wow. there. That's, that's, yep. it, it's from uh, the Pentagon Propaganda Machine. This was published in uh, 1970, and he really just really did a, great, a, mm. a really great job. Um, and then just to kind of move on here, uh, Bill, as you know, when Kelly Johnson developed the spy plane, you know, this is back in 1955, it cost American taxpayers $1 million in 1955. Now, that sounds like a, a reasonable number, right? A mm-hmm. million dollars to develop that. Uh, now, if we just go back and then move forward from there. So just keep this in mind. $1 million in 1955 for, for a U-2. Now, we move on to the Lockheed Martin F-22 Raptor. That's $412 million per plane. So... Basically, you can buy 412 U2s for the cost of one F-22. Now, right. what's wrong with this number here? You know, and I mean, what's these the are cost? Real numbers, right? And yeah. what's the cost of an F-35 that doesn't work? Oh, correct, correct. That's that's what I want to discuss as well. So, you know, originally they had planned to build a whole bunch of these F-22s. They only built 196 of them, and and they're just extremely expensive. Uh, moving on to the B-2. The B-2, we were going to build 132 of them. We only built 21. And the final cost on the B-2 is $2.3 billion per aircraft. So if you break it down, they were going to charge American taxpayers $274 million back in 1989. And then just a year later, the price went to $530 million per aircraft. In 1991, it jumped to 864 million per aircraft, and then at the end of the production run, it turned out to be 2.3 billion dollars per aircraft. So, <laughs> wow. bottom line is, it's it's the development production run that is the key defining factor of what the what the cost is. So, obviously, if they made more, it would have dropped the price. But since they cut this uh, production run from 132 down to 21, we all had to pay 2.3 billion per aircraft. Now, this isn't even the worst part of it, Bill. This is not even close to to the worst part of it. When you talk about the F-35, it has a name for itself. It is called, quote, the plane that broke the Pentagon's back. That's what they call the F-35. It is eight years behind schedule, $163 billion over budget. And doesn't Um, work. Right now, the gun won't work until 2019, and uh, the Navy's... F-35C version is $355 million per aircraft. Now, here's the thing. Lockheed Martin is cashing in more on the fixes for the aircraft than the actual production of the aircraft. That's how bad it's gotten at this point. They're just cashing in on this. And what's worse, mm -hmm. one of the things about this aircraft that's – I mean, this is what – I mean, it's exciting to me – but the failure is like devastating. One of the things about this aircraft, which supposedly makes it um, one of the most um, important, one of the most, one of the greatest um, interceptors that was ever built, mm-hmm. is that it the helmets are computer linked to the aircraft, and the yep. helmets supposedly talk to each other. So as Bill Scott once described it to me the f-35 was designed to stand on its tail and basically be able to encounter up to five targets at once share targeting information with the other with the other f-35s in the flight so even before the the enemy sees you 
you're shooting them down because you're faster than, on the draw than they are. The problem is the computer system doesn't work. And it doesn't talk, and the planes don't talk to each other. And this is technology. The purpose of this technology goes back literally over a hundred years to Nikola mm-hmm. Tesla talking about um, artificial intelligence driven torpedoes and warships yeah. and automatic and automaton soldiers. I have another, I have another joke. Sometimes well, later. You're, no, no, and you're going to love it. It's real fast. If your Tesla gets stolen, is it now in Edison? <laughs> Cute. Oh, my God. But, I mean, so the F-35 doesn't really work the way it was intended to work. And only the Marines have deployed the F-35, not the Navy and not the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other quick point, Bill, and this comes. The source is ECN News 8414. They summed it up really good. It says, quote, I'm sure this comes as no surprise. But the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter is expensive, very expensive, so expensive that according to one estimate, the money spent on the program could buy every homeless person in America a $600,000 mansion. Hmm. Isn't That's that how unbelievable? Much spend on the F-35. And one of the things but Bill why Scott... why is it called a black budget if taxpayers are paying for it? I always thought the black budget was drug money and illicit black money. You know, um, I don't think the F-35 uh, is being funded by black funding. Uh, no. F-35 is more of a white program. Right. But one of the things that Bill, ex- Bill Scott explained is that because of the existence of a black budget, there's no congressional oversight for the most part right. of what's being spent. So he said, imagine you have literally as much money as you can print. And so – a lot of these um, uh, defense contractors, knowing that the money is in unlimited supply because it's coming from right. a black budget out from under congressional oversight, they just charge like crazy. So the result is you may have 10 failures running into the tens or hundreds of billions before you have mm-hmm. one success. That's right. That's right. Uh, really quickly, Bill, let's talk about cost per flight hour. Okay. Uh, this is uh, Battlefield Intelligence. This is April 2nd, 2013. That's the source for this. Now, the B-1 bomber, this is cost per flight hour to operate, $57,807 per flight hour to operate. F-22, 68362 The B-52 costs $69,708 per hour to operate. Air Force One, Obama's plane, costs 161591 and build a B-2 stealth bomber costs $169,313 per hour to operate. Un- unbelievable. But I want to I turn attention quickly because I want to get your opinion on this. Yes. So here we are in the middle of we're, – we're entering the general election campaign. And one of the stories that came out of the Clinton campaign in New Hampshire was that she had promised – there's a point to this was that she had promised to uh, tell the truth, reveal the truth about UFOs to the American public. So long as that truth did not impede upon, did not encroach upon areas of national security. Well, since we all know UFOs do encroach upon areas of national security, but Hillary Clinton seemed um, incredibly open about talking about UFOs, and if we float back 
all the way almost uh, 20 years ago to the Phoenix Lights in 1997, there was a really curious incident with Bill Clinton, who was president that night, when he suddenly went invisible. Um, supposedly he was having um, he was staying with the golfer Greg Norman and he injured his knee and oh he had to be bedridden and he couldn't oh, nobody could talk to him poor Bill Clinton he was in such pain right at the time the Phoenix lights were appearing and right. then according to Francis Barwood who was in the Phoenix City Council beam me up Barwood for Francis Barwood, after asking the mayor of Phoenix, say, what's with these lights anyway? Never mentioning the letters UFO, she was suddenly roundly condemned. They were calling her Beam Me Up Barwood. The newspapers dumped on her, and she lost her reelection bid. She told me that the morning of the day that Governor Fife Symington, who was Fife Symington, he wasn't just the governor of Arizona. Fife Symington's cousin was Stu Symington, the senator from Missouri, who himself was a presidential candidate. But Stuart Symington was the first secretary of the United States Air Force in 1947 after the services split. So what would information would Stu Symington have received before the actual cover-up was kind of locked down over what happened at Roswell. He would have received the information about Roswell. He was the Secretary of the Air Force. And so his cousin now, Fife Symington, is the governor of Arizona who actually had a UFO sighting when he was in the Air Force. And he is in court. He is in the judge's chambers on a, on a certain morning. That's the day he says he's going to get to the bottom of these Phoenix Light sightings. He's really going to get to the bottom of this. Holds a big news conference. In walks a guy in an alien costume looking very grim and grotesque. It's his chief of staff. Years later on UFO Hunters, Fife Symington apologizes for that prank and reveals, I saw the flying triangle that night. It was right over my house outside of Phoenix, I called Luke Air Force Base because I'm the commander-in-chief of the Arizona Air National Guard, just like the National Guard and the commander-in-chief, and I was told by the general at Luke Air Force Base that Luke was closed that night. There were no flights. Not true. We learned later there were F-15s in the air that night taking video of the 830 lights, and then Stu Symington brags to us that, oh, yeah, I then got a pardon from Bill Clinton. That was the same Bill Clinton that disappeared on the night of the Phoenix Lights and whose first lady, Hillary Clinton, now running for president, is saying she'll reveal the truth about UFOs. Does that not seem suspicious to you? Mm, yeah. Um, I, what I question is does Hillary have the necessary clearances to be read into programs that Lockheed Skunk Works had been doing in the 1980s? That's my uh, question. That You mean as Secretary of State? Go ahead. You, no, I'm saying as president or... No, a, that's, that's the exact, exactly what I was going to ask, what you just asked. 
would she as secretary of state had been uh, had been read in to some of those programs because i don't know uh michael you're the one that that talked about the levels of clearance uh for presidents would the secretary of state have been read in on special access projects well from what i can determine bill it is the members of the house armed services committee and the senate armed services committee the ranking majority members who are read in because these are the guys who do the voting on the program. All this, everything we're talking about tonight has everything to do with funding. It's all about funding and the, they have to vote on these programs. They have to get funding for these programs. And, and the way they do it is to wine and dine these congressmen and senators. And that's also mentioned in Bill Scott's article as well. Yes, so, it is. You know, people like um, Les Aspen, who's now no longer with us, he would have known. Um, Senator Sam Nunn, he w- he would know. He would know. Carl but, Levin. Uh, it, it it would be it would be the the ranking um, House Armed Services Committee members that I would think would have the necessary clearance, including the engineers who worked with uh, Ben Rich at the Skunk Works in Burbank, and then later um, at Palmdale. And then uh, members of the uh, Phantom Works in McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis, and then Northrop and Hawthorne, California. These are the people who would have the need to know. I'm wondering if members of the of the Senate Intelligence Committee. I'm thinking specifically of um, Diane Feinstein from California. Diane Feinstein. Yes, that's correct. That's who correct. is one of Hillary Clinton's closest friends? Yeah, there's something there, Bill. There is something there. Absolutely. But but just just to reiterate, it, it is all about funding. This whole thing is about funding. Who's going to get financed and who's not? And the ones that don't, they fall by the wayside. Well, do we know how big the black budget is currently? I've got the figures for 87 and 92 and 94. Uh, some estimates 300 to 400 billion at this time. Certainly under Obama, it has uh, gone up. As you know, during the Reagan buildup, it went to a huge number by 88, 89. It started tapering off, and they started laying off thousands of aerospace workers in the valley. And then, you know, as Bush got in there, it started going up again. But, and but how do Bush we even? Went in. But if it's hidden, how do we even know there is a black budget? Because they're funding these programs. They're they're continuing to fund these programs, and these these craft are continually getting built. Like, how did Black Star get funding? Even Bill said that uh, people who worked at McDonnell Douglas were told to charge the time to the National Aerospace Program. And so that's how they covered up the the funding for it. That's right. I mean, one of the things Bill Scott pointed out is that the way the black budget works is that you have – it's funny. I mean – it struck me as something as uh, you have these correlations between which programs under the black budget – get billed, get invoiced to programs in the white budget so you never really know what you're paying for. You could be paying for something in the white budget and really the money is going into the black budget, but you would know it because there's no reporting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, that's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons. I mean, Johnny Carson would make jokes that the Pentagon, in order to put a toilet in a barracks, costs $3,000 for a toilet. You're not paying yeah. for the toilet. You're paying for the black budget that the toilet is a cover for. Mm-hmm. 
and the toilet doesn't even have a cover for most of those dormitories. But still, that's the that's the whole point. It is the Pentagon budget is really a cover for what's really being spent in terms of weapons in the black budget. And that's how we broke the back of the Soviet Union in the 1980s into the 90s because we simply outspent them to death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's true. And they, they could no longer compete because in order for them to track our F-117s, they'd have to retrofit their entire radar range at the cost of trillions. And so they, they just couldn't, uh, they couldn't keep up. They couldn't keep up. Uh, getting back to the specifics on the black budget bill, uh, Detroit Free Press, and we, we've talked about this before, February 8, 1987, had the cover here, Secret Ledger Hides Military Projects, Pentagon Black Budget Has Tripled Under Reagan. In this article, they state that for fiscal year 1988, the black budget was $51.1 billion. So this is for 1988, Bill. Wow. You know, uh, the thing about Reagan, too, and again, I'm really – I have to ask my partner, Rick, to try to plug me into um, Casino's Patty Davis. Um, the the whole point about Reagan is is when Reagan came to the White House, Reagan really didn't know a lot of what a lot of what was going on. For example, Reagan never knew just just for one small thing reagan never knew that americans were kept be- american flyers for the most part were kept behind in in uh, vietnam by the north vietnamese when the north vietnamese were negotiating with henry kissinger for the uh, for the famous paris accords one of the um deals was that all american service personnel held in north vietnam would be released. What the North Vietnamese did was they relocated many American flyers to Laos and Cambodia and Thailand so they wouldn't be covered under the Paris Peace Accords. So um, even in 1973, when, when quote-unquote our boys came home, there were American service – I talked to Jim Sanders about this who wrote The Men We Left Behind. There were uh, many, many of our service personnel – left behind. Reagan didn't know this when he came into office in 1981. And he was shocked to find out that Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Jimmy Carter, and when Jerry Ford, that was one of the reasons we uh, Jerry Ford didn't fight the North Vietnamese when they were rolling through South Vietnam. He was hoping it would get the North Vietnamese to release the Americans they were holding. It it, it destroyed the presidencies of uh, of of these people. Johnson didn't run for office because he was being forced into the Vietnam War because he was complicit in the Kennedy assassination, and they had him on that. So the only way to get out from under that mess was not to run in 1968. Um, uh, Richard Nixon tried and failed miserably to get a peace deal with the Vietnamese to get our flyers back. Uh, uh, Jerry Ford was shocked to find out that we had um, people still in in, Viet- in Southeast Asia. Um, and then uh, for George, well, for Ronald Reagan, there were flyers who were trying to escape, and Reagan was in a fury about how former presidents had left guys uh, had had left flyers in Southeast Asia, and then the person who really put it to rest, and again, this is where it's getting interesting, was Bill Clinton 
sending John Kerry to Hanoi in 1993 to bring Vietnam into the most favored nation status. It was his deal to get whatever flyers we could, to get whatever personnel we had in Vietnam states, and it was a way of paying them the $30 billion they wanted in war reparations. Hmm. Okay. So that's tracking wow. what took place during early Reagan administration then. Yeah. and so How did Bill Clinton get so powerful, Bill? I mean, he didn't. I mean, Bill Clinton got powerful because Bill Clinton um, knew what George Bush had done um, um, during the at the very end of the Carter administration. Bill Clinton had a lot of stuff on George H.W. Bush. I mean, nobody ever tagged George H.W. Bush because his father, Senator Prescott Bush, was fi- was was financing Hitler with Herbert Lehman and uh, Herbert Walker. They were financing the Third Reich. So were the Dulles brothers. So I mean. These guys were never called to account for this. Bill Clinton knew it. And in the transition, the present that George H.W. Bush gave to Bill Clinton was Black Hawk Down, um, leaving Americans in, in, in the Horn of Africa to get shot up by these, South Af- uh, by these African warlords and shooting down a Black Hawk helicopter. That was uh, George Bush's present to Bill Clinton. Um, but, I mean uh, – um, the reason that Bill Clinton beat George Bush was because of Ross Perot, because what Reagan did, and here's where the Iran-Contra thing comes into play. When Reagan found out that we had left Americans in Vietnam, he had to get them out. So um, one of his deals was that if he, he could put together a deal to get North Vietnam, well, now it's Vietnam, to get Vietnam the money it wanted for war reparations, that he would do it by selling weapons to the Iranians with whom he'd made a deal to sell weapons to the Iranians because he made a deal to get the um, American people out that were in the embassy. So it was to sell weapons to the Iranians, get weapons to the Nicaraguan Contras, but then use all the money that was being amassed from this deal to pay the North Vietnamese. So one of the one of the um, one of the fingerprints that's on this is that remember when Ollie North was assembling oh the Richard Seacourts and the Poindexters and people like that um, to uh, run the Iran Contra project. Ask yourself why everybody that Ollie North pulled together to form that task force, none of them were specialists in Central America, which was the ostensible purpose of this whole mission. They were all General Secord. These were all Southeast Asia guys. This was to get the Americans out of Vietnam. And... The other thing Reagan tried to do was getting Ross Perot to finance a guerrilla prison break in Vietnam. George H.W. Bush found out about it and put a stop to it, and that's why Ross Perot ran against George H.W. Bush in 1992, electing Bill Clinton. Wow. Makes total sense now. I mean, that's what happened. Uh, So when we talk about Hillary Clinton... As a candidate, 
and we talk about what Hillary Clinton knows and why she was Obama's natural choice to be the Secretary of State. She knew all this. She was part and parcel of this stuff. She was Bill Clinton's closest advisor. I think that she knew all about this, especially what happened in Phoenix in in mm-hmm. in in 1997 and she's sitting on this and john podesta what did john podesta do um in between the uh, of the administrations john podesta was working with leslie kane to get to sue the uh, to sue nasa to get all the information to find out why nasa was present at the crash in kecksburg in 1965 John Podesta was part of that lawsuit. Have, have we passed the point of talking about Solar Warden? Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Do Is it. That, you do I, it. Well, uh, the thing, Michael, you sent along with some materials for tonight's show, you sent along a really great PDF talking about Star Shields, the legacy of correct. Ronald Reagan. Is there, it, do, you want, do you want me to make that available to our listeners? Or is Absolutely. that. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Great. That was really a brilliant piece that you yeah. did. I have yeah, to say, go ahead, Nancy. To talk to, yeah. Wanted to talk about that a bit, just because what? what tell folks what Star Shield and and Star Wars. Tell folks what that was all about, if you guys. Okay. Uh, bo- the bottom line, as I understand it, is during the early years of the Reagan administration, when Reagan had a crusade to rid the world of nuclear weapons. Um, it was that night on March 23rd, 1983, when he delivered his State of the Union address, and he talked about, uh, well, he, he delivered the SDI speech to the American people. Uh, this was live on television. And then one night after that happened, the big Hudson Valley boomerang was seen over the Taconic Freeway. So the connection here is, when you talk about an SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, or a SHIELD, um, the integral parts of that program are brilliant pebbles, uh, space-based chemical lasers, directed energy weapons, rail guns. That's kind of the things that Reagan was, was doing. Um, now, the scientists at Los Alamos were intimately involved in this program. And in order to get this to work, you need an over-the-horizon radar system. But wouldn't it be great if you had a mobile airborne over-the-horizon radar system that could hover over American cities, be completely silent, completely black, would be a large craft? This is perhaps, and I'm just, I can't connect all the dots because I don't have all the full facts and, and truth because I'm not read into this, but I'm just proposing that what perhaps people were seeing over the Hudson Valley area in the early 1980s was a mobile over-the-horizon, airborne, early warning system that was integral to the Reagan's SDI program. Wow. And uh, when we were filming our first – this was an episode, by the way, that never saw the light of day. The whole thing was buried. When we were filming our first episode of UFO Hunters, um, we – the first episode went to Las Vegas. Because Jim Sanders, who wrote The Men We Left Behind, The Downing of TWA Flight 800, Soldiers of Misfortune, Jim Sanders said that hovering over the city, really, oh, he yeah. could see it from his driveway, was this, this bright light, brighter than the moon, brighter than Venus, and it just hovered there. 
And I said, well, mm-hmm. it's a star, right? And he said, no, 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 no. It's not a star because it doesn't move. I mean, you don't see as the night progresses, this thing stays in one spot. I mean, that's not a celestial object. It's something else. He said, you got to see this. At the same time, we were doing UFO magazine at the time. And at the same time, this guy, um, Colonel X, was saying over uh, 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 one of the natural forests outside of Las Vegas is this UFO. It's an anti-gravity thing. He didn't know what it was. But he said it's a UFO. So we said, okay, let's go. Let's take a really high-powered telescope um, mated to, to a camera and let's t- get it on film. We did. We saw the object from Jim Sanders' driveway. We went up into the National Forest above Las Vegas. We caught this thing on camera. I texted Nancy and said, we found it. We found it. When I, when I hit the send button, its lights went out. And the camera crew was screaming. It just dropped below the horizon. Drove back to Sanders' house. Sanders says to us, hey, what did you guys do? thing disappeared. We said, Jim, I don't know what happened. Told him the whole story. We got it on camera. Drove away from Sanders' house. I get a cell phone call. Hey, the thing's back up again. What happened? So who do I call? Bill Scott. Whom do I call? Bill Scott. And I told Bill Scott the whole story. So Bill Scott goes, they were funning with you. What you saw was a listening, radar scrubbing, radio scrubbing, internet scrubbing platform. They're all over the place. That's what you saw. And they saw you and they read your license plate. They knew exactly who you guys were. (laughs) That sounds right to me. Yep. Well, did did you say earlier, Michael, iridescent pebbles? Uh, brilliant pebbles. Brilliant, brilliant pebbles. pebbles. That's what a is, part of the SBI program. What does that mean? That's like it is a it is a uh, ceramic based uh, projectile that's shot out of a railgun at about thirteen kilometers per second, and it's designed to destroy satellites and uh, incoming Russian ICBMs, essentially. That's what that is. But that was all part of the SDI program, and that program was basically sold to Reagan by Edward Keller. And so there's that Los Alamos connection. One of the main instrumental parts of that whole SDI thing to get it to work is you need an over-the-horizon radar to track what's coming in from the former Soviet Union. And wouldn't it be better to have an airborne system that's mobile than than to have something right, in Alaska right. or something that you couldn't move around? So it just stands to reason that you'd have this big triangular-shaped craft that would have uh, cross-beam and girder construction like a truss bridge. And then under that uh, skeleton, you'd have the uh, like a big radar AWACS dish or something, and, and you could move this silently anywhere you wanted, and people would never know. So that could be perhaps what they were doing. Would this be manned or unmanned? This would be unmanned, absolutely unmanned. It could be either, but... Yeah, it's either way. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah sure. Mm-hmm. And, and what do you think about the possibility? Because the folks in Phoenix were saying suddenly these things would shoot off and they would say, wow, it's amazing. What if they never shot off? What if what you're looking at is a holographic projection? 
I mean, sure, talk about stealth. Too. I mean, the uh, the great thing about stealth, and and we know we have the technology for this because when the Israelis <laughs> took out that Syrian that uh, nuclear reactor in Syria that the North Koreans gave them, when the Israelis took it out, the the Syrians thought the Israelis were on their side of the border because the Israelis took the Syrian radar and threw the image in a different direction. So the Syrians are watching an Israeli Air Force exercise on the Israeli side of the Golan Heights while the Israelis are are flattening this North Korean nuclear reactor. Mm-hmm. And we know this technology goes back at least 30 years because in the movie Failsafe, based on the novel, in the movie Failsafe, these, um, these B-58 hustlers are given uh-huh, yes. remember that movie you remember the story where these B58 a squadron of B58 hustlers are not that the Soviet computer system determines that this particular exercise which terminates at a failsafe point over the Bering Strait is actually a real exercise so the computer automatically jams the radio frequencies of the um, Air Force pilots so that they never get the recall messages. As a result, the Air Force pilots uh, of the squadron continues into the Soviet Union. As the Soviet Union tries to shoot the planes down, their missiles go after the wrong object because the last plane in that formation is simply a radar plane. And all it does is it – and this is 1960s technology. It takes the signal from the Soviet radars and throws it to a distance. So all the anti-aircraft missiles harmlessly float into space and we actually wind up bombing Moscow. That's the that's well, the whole point. We, ha- we have a listener who happens not he hasn't been around lately, but he was on our show uh, on PTSD, and and we were just calling him, I believe John or Steve or whatever. But anyway, he's talked to me periodically, and he's been on other radio shows, and he has suggested that our intelligent drones are way, way, way off the farm, much more than the military would like. And the Jade, remember that Jade exercise? Yeah, but Nancy, that's like across the border with all technologies. The military and NASA and all these groups are way more advanced than they would. The no, no, no. What, I'm, what, no what, what this guy was saying. Especially drone technology. Well, no, but what James was saying is that the computers are making decisions now that are killing our own soldiers, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I totally and, believe that, yeah. And they, and they, they sense it's out of control. And so a lot of stuff right now, there's a lot of scrambling going on with intelligent weaponry. And I just wonder if, um, Michael has heard anything along these lines and that that Jade exercise was an attempt to isolate, I believe, um, a rogue portion of the drone community i'm not sure and uh our friend has not been around lately and everybody's wondering but okay so the question is, that is far-fetched is that yeah fetched? where are you in the whole artificial intelligence development for weaponry michael um i recall hearing about the jade helm exercise last year in september and i remember it was a design program to take the human general element out of the picture out of the loop and have the AI computers take over kind of like a Skynet. Now, I don't know how successful that is. I'm sure it was a good dry run. Who knows what they learned, but I really don't know too much about the AI drones. Mm -hmm. Well, the 
you know, one of the problems with, uh, with, uh, with artificial intelligence, it's not really a problem. It's that nobody really knows what it is. I mean, I'm not being, I'm not trying to be overly simplistic. Well, the movie Stealth, which we saw this week, well, a couple days ago, has beside, um, Jennifer, or Jennifer Beals, I think her name is. Right. Playing right. a stealth pilot. But beside that, uh, it has a drone who is a character in the movie. A right. drone stealth. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who goes a little bit rogue and then is renovated and becomes part of the movie. And I wondered if is there any truth to the fact that we might have a drone stealth thing? I bet we do. Maybe. Uh, basically, what I can tell you about that is, let me give you a quote from Ben Rich. This is uh, published in, uh, let's see, this is September 7th, 1988, AIAA lecture by Ben Rich. This is what he said. I wish I could tell you about the projects we are currently working on. They are both fascinating and fantastic. They call for technologies once only dreamed of by science fiction writers. So even Ben had talked Mm. about how the technology we have is just incredible. Yeah. So there's no telling how far they are. Probably, Probably anywhere between... 20 and 40 years ahead of where we are right now. Or Any air show you go to, it's already 40 years old. Oh, I, you know, I, I'd, you, say, I'd probably say even 100 years. Well, It, it could be that. Yeah. It could be, yes. Well, Michael, you referenced Jan Harzan, who is one of the directors of MUFON. Sure, and, sure. Um, uh, Jan Harzan and I were sitting at a Rochester airport after, <clears throat> after a, a MUFON conference. And we're talking about, and you know, Jan was one of the chief engineers at IBM. So yeah. we're talking about this. And so I'm not going to get into the whole story because it involves time travel and a supercomputer. But um, Jan mentioned something about um, a supercomputer that uh, that I named. He says, how did you know that? I said, this guy on the phone told me about it. He says, wow, there's a guy sitting behind us at the airport. And he turns around and says, you know, I used to work for the NSA. And, of course, Jan's eyes and my eye, you would just pop open and say, uh-huh. And the guy says, back in the 1960s, NASA had asked us if they could use – if they could take some time on one of our supercomputers to do some of their um, space calculation work. This is an orbital calculation work. And the NSA said flat out, no, that that technology is not for you. And the guy said, I was never read into what that computer could do. But I was astounded that the NSA had computers more advanced than NASA. Sure, sure. And I'm just getting a message from my co-host. That we are out of time. It is it is the witching hour. It is midnight. It is officially summer here, and uh, happy summer, everybody. And uh, we have to go. So I want to thank our guest, Michael Schratt. Michael, tell us if folks want to get in contact with you, want your website, want your articles. What do they go? Where do they go? Um, they can just link to what you have posted on your website, Bill. That's 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 perfectly fine. Okay. Um, Wonderful piece up. Um, it gives really great background. It's Can't hear you, Nancy. Can't hear you. 
Yeah, you're off. Never mind. I'm sorry. That was my cough button. There you go. There you go. And I uh, I will put up the little uh, piece, which I I believe everybody should try to read, the the Star Wars piece with Reagan. Very lovely. And next week, we have a – we're going to be back to still our roots, but really our roots roots. We're going to be talking to Richard Smith about free John Ford. Free John Ford. everybody who knows about John Ford. And again, it's the same exact story. It's Brookhaven. It's the Hudson Valley. Well, Brookhaven is on Long Island. Yeah. And a lot of stuff about that, too. So, Alfred, stay tuned. Well, actually, I believe John Ford was at the Kecksburg crash. I don't think so. Yeah. It's part of how the trouble started. Mm -mm. He was at Brookhaven, not at Kecksburg. Uh, the thing about Kecksburg that always got to me was, of course, why was one of the directors of NASA, Kurt Davis, there deeply involved in the Kecksburg retrieval? And Kurt Davis was the electrical engineer and SS right. officer wow. for the Nazi bell in the Owl That's Mountains right. in Poland. And someday, Michael, you and I will have this conversation about what was the Nazi bell. Well, we we yeah. already know, Michael. I hope you can come back. Yeah. And Angel sure, himself, yeah. Angel is going to ask you. I know. To, For sure. Yeah, exactly. So we just hope you'll be a friend to the uh, listeners who have a lot of questions. Michael, I've actually been uh, dying to interview you or have you on one of our shows for a very long time. So it was super exciting to have you on tonight. Oh, great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That's great. Okay, Michael. So thank you. Uh, thank you. Stay tuned. Um, stay tuned, folks, for uh, Midnight in the Desert, I guess. Right. And, and then. And then no, 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 no. That's No, we don't stay tuned no. for that. Okay. No, we no. don't do that. But but we can no. say that for the 4th of July show, we have John Alexander. So ah, that, yes. Not, John Alexander. Ah, there you we're go. not slouching around here, guys. John Alexander is going to be here and probably John Liebert. And we're going to talk about the Orlando shooting on July 4th and oh. what that means. Oh. And, really? Yeah, well, that's John Alexander's article on Huffington Post oh, about okay. that shooting, and then okay. John Liebert will be here, and then my writing partner, John Liebert, and then on July 11th... We have no one. We have somebody. <laughs> nope. It was Mike. Mike was kind no, no, no. enough. I, I just... Okay, I've got to get to work. Okay, so everybody from the banks of Primrose Creek uh, in beautiful downtown Solbury Village, Pennsylvania, we are your co-host, Bill. That's me and Nancy. Good night, everybody. On Future Theater, on PSN Radio, the Dark Matter Digital Network, with our guest, uh, Michael Schratt, whom we thank for his appearance tonight. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Saying to everybody, welcome to summer, and see you next week on Future Theater. And stick around for The Compassionate Wolf on psn-radio.com. Ooh, Compassionate Wolf. That's right. Thanks, Michael. I like his show. His show.